I'm Pastor Michael. We're doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. And we're going to look at the second half of uh, the story in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. And it's on page four in your bulletin. It's a famous story, and um, we can just pick up in verse 17. Um, It's pretty easy to follow what is going on. So starting in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. 
but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the word of God. So we are looking at the last of the great miracles in the Gospel of John. And actually, John, he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs. And this is the climactic sign. This is the most intense, the most uh, dramatic of the signs. And in it, we see who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we see the glory of God made manifest in his Son. And I want you to know it's an astonishing story, not just for the miracle in itself, because, but in it, we see this rich and complex emotional life of Jesus. Right? We see this incredible range of emotions in the Son of God. And that's important because in them lies, I believe, the secret of the meaning of the universe. And so my three points I'm going to make, and here's the outline. We're going to look at first the tears of Jesus. Secondly, we're going to look at the theology of resurrection. And then finally, we're going to look at the anger of Jesus. So first, the tears of Jesus. So in the story, Jesus um, arrives at Lazarus' funeral. And there are two sisters, and they're both grieving. They're both mourning the death of their brother. And when they see Jesus, I want you to notice they say the same thing. In fact, they use the exact same words. This is both in the English translation and also in the original Greek. In verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then a little bit later on in verse 32, Mary also says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And so you have two sisters, and they make identical statements. But I want you to notice that Jesus' response to each sister is radically different. Because to Martha, he basically gives her a, a kind of Bible study lesson. And it's almost an argument, right? He's, he's engaging her mind. He's challenging her to think deeply, to think theologically about this. But with Mary, I want you to notice, he just cries. No words, no lecture, no instruction. He just joins her in her sorrow. He's pulled down into her grief, and he just weeps. It's remarkable. Why would Jesus do this? And the answer is that it's because that is exactly what each sister needed. That was exactly what they needed in that moment. And here you see the infinite wisdom of Jesus. And you see his infinite love. And you see how they are perfectly combined, perfectly blended, and, and balanced together. One of um, my greatest struggles as a parent is trying to balance being hard and soft. Because you don't want to be too hard, because children need a lot of 
compassion and sympathy. And at the same time, you don't want to be too soft, otherwise you're not going to prepare them for the rigors of this life. And so you have to be hard and demanding in the right places, and you have to be soft and tender in the right places, in perfect balance. And let me tell you, there have been so many nights after the kids have gone to bed where I think about the day and I'm just filled with regret and self-doubt. And I resolve to myself that I'm going to approach it differently the next time. But I can never get the balance right. And it's because ultimately I'm a flawed human being. And I have all of the limitations and weaknesses of being a son of Adam. And I want you to know that this also applies to pastors too. There have been so many conversations that went poorly for me and they haunt me and I wish I could go back in time and redo like 20 of those conversations maybe 30 of those conversations but I can't because they're done but I want you to know this story is showing us that Jesus is the perfect parent. He's the perfect pastor. He's the perfect counselor. He's the only one who can give you exactly what you need in the exact proportions that you need them, at the exact right moments that you need them. And don't you realize He's already doing that in your life. He's giving you exactly what you need, not what you want, but what you need in order to produce in your life holiness and ultimate joy. And I want you to look at the story of Martha and Mary. Look at Jesus' love and care for them. And I want you to think about their experience because in the middle of their story, right, in the middle of chapter 11, don't you think they were confused and bewildered and maybe even angry at Jesus? And they were wondering, what in the world is he doing? But that's how it goes with Jesus. He's not a tame lion. You can't control him because he's the Lord. And so when you look at Mary and Martha's life, when you look at Jesus loving and caring for them like that, what makes you think that your life would go any differently? But I want to look at the tears of Jesus more closely. In verse 35, which is reputedly the shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. The word wept there is the Greek word um, dakruao, which indicates deep emotion. And so this is not just, you know, a single silent tear falling on his cheek, but Jesus here is weeping. He's sobbing. This is intense grief. 
Now, on one level, this doesn't make any sense at all because Jesus knows something that nobody else there knew. He knows that in just a few short moments, there's going to be a resurrection. He knows that in just a few short moments, he's going to turn the funeral into a party. There's going to be this explosion of joy. So then why? Why the tears? Here's the answer. It's because of the greatness of his love. He comes to this funeral and he sees Mary crying and he sees all of the friends crying and he sees this intense sorrow and the devastation of Lazarus' death. And because of the greatness of his love, he will not close his heart to that even for a moment. So that even though he is God, he will not insulate himself, he will not wall himself from the awfulness of Lazarus' death, but he enters into their grief, he joins them in their sorrow, and he weeps. I want you to marvel at that for a moment. That Jesus has so knit his heart together with our hearts that this story is telling us he feels the fullness of our pain. That he has bound his heart to you and me with greater sympathy, the Bible says, than any parent or any lover ever could. Think about that. Because who are we? I tell you, we are specks of dust compared to the creator of the universe. And yet this story is telling us that when we suffer, it inflicts a deep heart wound in the king of the cosmos. No other religion even dares to claim this because in all other religions, God is so high and so lofty that he cannot possibly feel what we feel. And yet the God of the Bible, listen to Psalm 56 verse 8. This is David speaking to God. Listen to this. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Do you know what the psalm is saying? It's saying, do you think all of those times when you were crying alone, do you think that when you shed those tears, they went unnoticed? And the answer is no. God was there. And his heart was wounded for you. And he counted your tears. He, ke- he keeps them in his bottle. One of my um, favorite scenes in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia is from a book called The Magician's, Ele- um, the Magician's Nephew. Judah's reading another book called The Magician's Elephant. Um, but anyways, Magician's Nephew. Um, and you need to understand that um, Aslan, who is the great lion, he is the Christ figure of the, stories, of the stories. And in The Magician's Nephew, it's the story of this boy named Diggory who is desperately trying to find a cure 
for his mother who is dying of this sickness. And he meets Aslan. And there's this scene where he's talking to Aslan. And listen to this. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was about himself. So that's the first point, the tears of Jesus. The second point, the theology of resurrection. In verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's one of the most famous statements he, he's ever made, uh, he makes in the Bible. And um, I want to try to show you a little bit of the wonder and the breathtakingness of this statement. And so we have to back up a little bit. In verse 23, Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha, without skipping a beat, she says to Jesus, I know, he, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection, on the last day. Now, in that last statement, you need to know there's a whole theological and biblical backdrop to that. And so let me try to unpack it for you a little bit. And so you need to know that Martha, like all good Jews in first century Palestine, she believed in the hope of the resurrection. And you can find this hope all throughout the Old Testament, and it goes like this. God made a promise to Abraham. This is the central promise of the Bible. And God promised Abraham that he would bring him and his descendants into a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in that land, they would find rest from their enemies, and they would flourish, and they would live in the presence of God forever and ever. That's the promise. But then when you read through the story of the Old Testament, you notice that the promise goes unfulfilled. The people do indeed enter the land under the leadership of Joshua, but they never find rest. They never experience fullness of life with God. And the reason for that is because they rebel, they disobey and and follow after other gods. And as a result, they experience sickness and invasion and exile and then finally death. And it seems like the promises of God have been thwarted for the dead cannot praise God. In Psalm 6 verse 5, um, the psalmist says to God, listen to this. In death, there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you praise? And I like the poetry of uh, 2 Samuel 14, 14. Listen to this. The dead 
are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. And so the central question driving the Old Testament is, what will happen to all of the people who have been faithful to God, who believed in the promise given to Abraham, but now they are lying in the dust of the earth? What will happen to them? And when you read the Old Testament, you find this this quiet hope reverberating that love is stronger than death, that somehow God will fulfill his promise even beyond the grave. And so you have curious passages like Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph, on his deathbed, he commands his sons to bring back with them his bones back to the promised land. It's very strange. Why does he ask for that? Or you have Job in the midst of his affliction when all hope seems lost. In 1925, this is what he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And then he says this, and after my skin has been destroyed, he's talking about his death, yet in my flesh I will see God. And then you get to the prophets. And in the prophets, that still small voice of hope that pulsates in the Torah and in the Psalms and in the historical narratives just explodes into full bloom. And you have passages like Ezekiel chapter 37. And in Ezekiel 37, the prophet has this vision of a valley of dry, desiccated bones. It's this ghastly sight, and it's a picture of Israel. And then God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And the prophet responds, smart response. He says, O Lord, you alone know. And then God says, prophesy over the bones. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then to his utter astonishment, Ezekiel sees the bones begin to reconstitute themselves, tendons and flesh attached. And then God breathes his breath, that's the spirit, upon the bones. And at the end of the vision, Ezekiel sees all the people of God once again in flesh and blood. Or you have passages like Daniel, who is writing in the exile. This is the lowest moment in Israel's history. And in Daniel chapter 12, the very end of his book, in verses 2 and 3, this is one of the last words ever written in the Old Testament. He has this vision of the future of Israel, and this is what he writes. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And so that was Martha's hope, that at the end of history there will be a national resurrection and all of God's people will be restored to fullness of life 
And so Martha, as a good and devout Jew, she says to Jesus, I know that my brother Lazarus will be counted in that number. And Jesus responds. He says something that no human being has ever said before. That nothing in the Old Testament could have ever prepared Martha to hear or or allowed her to anticipate. He basically says to Martha, no, you don't understand. He says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the resurrection, which is pretty much the strongest way that you could say it. Because he's not just saying, I'm a teacher who has come to teach you more about the resurrection. And he's not even saying, I have the power of the resurrection. I can perform a resurrection right now here for Lazarus. But he is saying, I am the resurrection. He makes it personal. He says, the resurrection of God's people will happen in me, through me. All of those Old Testament passages, don't you realize, were talking about me. Joseph and Daniel and Job, they were looking forward to me. I want you to understand the magnitude of this claim. He is claiming divinity. He is claiming exclusive worship. There is no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. He is claiming absolute lordship. Because if Jesus is the resurrection, then he is the author of life, and therefore you owe him everything. And then, I love it, he asks Martha whether she believes this. Because he's not just interested in giving her a Bible study lesson. He doesn't just want to advance her theological understanding. But he wants her personal commitment. And so he says, do you believe this? And in verse 27, Martha confesses Christ. And I want you to know that alongside of Peter's more famous confession, this is the highest Christology on the lips of any disciple spoken in the Gospels. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, that's the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. It's an astonishing statement of faith. And I really think Martha doesn't get enough credit for this because she's up there with the great heroes of the faith in the Bible. And so Martha confesses Christ. Is that it? I want you to know that you cannot read this story from the safety and the distance of an observer because this story is pressing in on you. Do you also, with Martha, believe? And if you believe this, it will change your life. It has to. Paul, in Philippians 1.21, writes this. Listen to this. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
He says, to live in this life, it belongs to Christ. And to die, well, that would be gain. That only makes sense in light of the resurrection. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Because on the one hand, if you truly believe this, it would make you bold and fearless in your obedience to Christ. And it would make you willing to do risky things for the Lord. You would risk your comfort to welcome the needy into your life. You cannot love anyone who is needy without suffering cost in your own life. You would be willing to risk reputation to share the gospel with your friends and with your co-workers. What would they think of you if they know that you believe this? You would be willing to risk your security so that you could be radically generous with your money. Because if Jesus is the resurrection, then your life doesn't belong to you it belongs to Christ. And on the other hand, it will, get, you will, it will give you a deep calm and peace about the troubles of this life. Because what's the worst thing that could happen to you? Death? If you are in Christ, you know what death is? Death is just a dark tunnel that leads into a ballroom, into a beautiful new world of righteousness and truth. And so you can go out into the world and say, give me your best shot. What's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? All you will do is transform me into glory. So that's the second point, the resurrection. Let's look at the third point, the anger of Jesus. So at the tomb, Jesus weeps. But I want you to know there's also anger. And unfortunately, this is covered up by the translation. If you look at verse 33, in verse 33 it says, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, I'm sorry to say this, but that translation is just completely wrong. I don't usually would want to say this, but you don't have to take my word for it. Literally, all of the commentaries say the same thing. D.A. Carson, Craig Keener, Leon Morris, all the big heavy headers of biblical scholarship, they all make the same point. And so what's going on in verse 33 is that the word that is translated deeply moved is the Greek word embrimaomai. And embrimaomai literally means to snort, right? To snort. And it was usually used to describe animals. And so imagine, you know, a bull, his nostrils flare, you know, he's, he's stomping his feet. And so when that word embrimaoma is used of human beings, it means deep anger and rage. The other word in verse 33 that is translated um, deep, uh, greatly troubled is the Greek word terasso. Now, terasso literally means to shake or to tremble. And when you combine terasso and embrimaomai, the language is very strong. What the verse is telling us is that Jesus was shaking with rage. He was quaking with fury. It's very strange, right? You could see why the translators try to soften it. So why? Why is Jesus so angry? 
Was he angry with Mary and with Martha? No, of course not. Was he angry with the crowds? That doesn't make any sense. It must be that he was angry with death itself. He was mad at the grave. Because look at verse 38. You see the same word. It says, Then Jesus deeply moved, again, deeply moved is the Greek word embrimaomai. Embrimaomai means anger, rage. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's a startling image. Jesus is approaching the tomb and he's full of fury. His nostrils are flared. He's roaring like an animal. One commentator said he's like a a champion ready to do battle. Why? Why is Jesus so angry with death? And the answer is that he's angry at the evil of death. And I think this is where um, it really challenges what our modern culture tells us about death. Because our modern culture tells us that death is natural. It's just a part of life. You guys remember um, in the movie Forrest Gump, um, Forrest Gump receives the news that his mother is um, dying of some sickness. And so Forrest Gump, he runs back home and he sees his mother lying in bed. His face is stricken. He's shell-shocked. And he says, Mama... What's going on? And Forrest Gump's mother says to him, it's my time, Forrest. She says, death is just a part of life. It's just a part of life, Forrest. Or consider Star Wars, Episode (laughs) 3. You have Anakin Skywalker. He's afraid that Padme is going to die. So he goes to Yoda for counsel. And what does Yoda tell him? I was thinking of doing it with a Yoda accent, but I'm just going <laughs> to give it to you straight. Judah, hush. All right. So Yoda says, death is a natural part of life. Listen to this. Therefore, mourn them not. Miss them not. That's our culture. Death is natural. Our culture looks at the unstoppability, the unavoidableness of death, and says it must be natural. It must be part of life, the natural cycle of life. But here's my question to you. If death is natural, then why? Why does it feel so unnatural? Why does it feel like a violation like it shouldn't be there, that it's wrong. Why do we have that feeling? I believe God has given us this intuition as a signpost to the truth. Because the Bible tells us that death was not part of God's original design for this world. Human beings were never meant to die. So then where does death come from? Death comes from human sin and rebellion. And therefore, don't you realize, death 
is an evil intruder into God's house. Imagine that you are lying in bed. Your whole family is tucked into bed, tucked in for the night, and then in the middle of the night, an evil home intruder breaks into your house with the intention to harm and to destroy your family. What would you do? How would you feel? You would feel rage, fury, and you would protect your family, what is most precious to you in this life. And you do everything you can to fight off the invader. Because anger is love in action. And the more you love something, the angrier you will be when that is threatened. And so Jesus, in our story, he's standing at Lazarus' tomb, and he is filled with fury. Not just because of Lazarus' funeral, but because of all the funerals this world has ever experienced. And he's standing there like a champion, ready to do battle. But this is a battle that will cost him his life. Because when you go down to verse 46, you'll notice that the crowd is watching this miracle. And it says that some of them believed, but some of them went and reported it to the Pharisees in Jerusalem. So what's going on here? This is the seventh and final miracle in the Gospel of John. This is the climactic miracle. And it's the turning point in the story. And we, we talked about this last week. Because the miracle is too public, because it's too dramatic and spectacular, because it's too close to Jerusalem, when Jesus performs this miracle, this miracle, it seals his fate. And from that point on, what happens in the rest of John chapter 11, which I don't have printed for you, is that the Sanhedrin meets in council and they decide this man has to die. And they began to plot his death from that point forward. And you see, Jesus knew all of that. He knew that. And so he knew that when he said, Lazarus, come out, he was signing his own death warrant. He knew that the only way he could pull Lazarus out from the grave is that he would have to be buried in another one in just a few days from then. And so what the story is telling us is that death is like this monster that has Lazarus in its grip. And the only way that Jesus can release Lazarus, can rescue Lazarus, is he has to throw himself into the jaws of that monster. And this is where a lot of people say, I don't get that. I don't understand. Because why can't Jesus just snap his fingers and wipe away death and suffering and evil? If all of these things are evil intruders into the house of God, why can't he just wipe them clean? Doesn't he have the power? And the answer is, yeah. Jesus has the power. He can snap his fingers and wipe the earth clean of all evil. But the problem is that he would wipe out humanity as well. 
And therefore, the only way that he could save and redeem this world, the only way that he can rescue you and me is he has to stand in our place and he has to die in our stead. That was the only way he had to go to the cross. He had to. That's what the story is telling us. The only way that he could raise Lazarus from the dead is through the cross. And if you believe this, when you believe in him, this is what Jesus says in verse 25. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this firm hope of the resurrection, of which the raising of Lazarus was only a preview. It was a small glimpse, because in the end, Lazarus died again. But we know that in the resurrection to come, in the final and ultimate resurrection, there will, we will never die And we will live in your presence forever and ever. And everything sad will come untrue. And so we pray that you would fortify us now with this truth. Give us fearless lives of obedience. Give us this deep calm about the troubles of this life. Knowing that there awaits us another world. Our own world renewed and restored. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.